42,000. That's how many veterans live here in Hamilton County, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. These are people who have stood up and protected our country in a number of different ways, with the bulk of these veterans serving during the Vietnam era. But no matter which branch of the military or how long the tour, veterans have been calling Coleraine Township home for decades, and today we're going to find out why. Hey Coleraine, I'm Helen, the communications specialist here at the Township. This month we're talking about the men and women who have served our country and the reasons they call Coleraine Township home. To help me with this, I have Gary Henson here. He's an Air Force veteran and a member of the Coleraine Historical Society. Thanks for joining me, Gary. You're welcome. My pleasure. First, let's hear a little bit about your history. You said you're in the Air Force, correct? Yes. I joined the Air Force in September 69 and was in until June, technically uh, June of 73, although my discharge says September 73. And I'll explain that in a minute. I had a low draft number, uh, and so I knew where I was going to go in 1969. I graduated Corning High School in 68 and was working at GE Aircraft Division as a detailed draftsman. So in September, when I knew the draft was low, uh, I was going to go. I decided I would wanted to try to create my own destiny. And uh, I wanted to get in the Air Force like my dad was and maybe try to fly. So I enlisted in the Air Force, did my basic at Blackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. And I was lucky enough to be selected to be a loadmaster and was sent to Shepard Air Force Base in San Antonio, excuse me, uh, Wichita Falls, uh, Texas. And there I learned how to, what a loadmaster was and and uh, how to do the loadmaster stuff. Uh, then I was sent to Pope Air Force Base in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Uh, and that's where we got hands-on training on how to be uh, a loadmaster in a, a C-130 simulator. Um, so we were actually using the equipment inside the aircraft. For somebody who doesn't know, what is a loadmaster? What did you do? A loadmaster... Is the guy that's in charge basically of from the bulkhead of the aircraft behind the navigator and pilot and co pilot all the way back to the end of the aircraft? And what they do is they supervise and manage the loading and offloading of cargo, whatever it may be, onto the aircraft, calculate the weight and balance, uh, taking in consideration fuel consumption so that the aircraft basically can land and take off safely without crashing, hopefully. (laughs) You must have been very good at math to do something like that. Well, that was back in the days when they had slide rules. Uh, We're talking 69, 70. Calculators were just being introduced, but everything I did in the Air Force as far as uh, weight and balance calculation uh, was done with a slide rule, and it was all hand done. Now today, fortunately for those guys, it's all computerized. So they just type in a bunch of stuff on a a little handheld computer and uh, everything's done for them. That's neat. So what happened after basic? Uh, I was training to be uh, a loadmaster on C-130E models. Um, That's a four-engine turboprop aircraft. All it does is carries uh, cargo, anything from personnel like airdrop or paratroopers to uh, tanks, jeeps, 
spare engines for a C-130 or a jet aircraft engine, and even missile. I had to train in uh, the safety for nuclear weapons. So, but then uh, after I received my aircrew member wings in May of 70, I was assigned to the 2nd Aerial Port Squadron in Little Rock, Arkansas. Now, the Aerial Port Squadron is, the, is connected to the Air Freight Division, which loads and offloads the aircraft. So I had to be qualified in all the equipment to do that. But my main job was as a loadmaster, the weight and balance of the aircraft. And I flew with the aircraft from point A to point B, wherever it was going. But I also, as an aeroport squadron, we rigged the airdrop loads. So all the cannons or tanks or ammunition, medical supplies, cargo, whatever it was, we had to rig it onto an aluminum pallet to put into the aircraft. So that's what, uh, I was with the uh, 314th Combat Support Group, which was under the uh, 314th Tactical Airlift Wing in Little Rock. Then in July and August of 71, fast forwarding here, I was sent TDY to India during the East-West Pakistani War, which is what Bangladesh, the country of Bangladesh, came out of. And there we just uh, assisted support for Operation Bonnie Jack, which we were flying in uh, medical supplies and food, rice to the refugee camps and flying out refugees from Pakistan. And was awarded the Air Force Accommodation Medal for uh, outstanding achievement. We, the whole group of us, went, went over there that got that. And then in October of '71, I was assigned to go TDY again. That's temporary duty to uh, support the NATO mission in uh, Europe. So we were outside of uh, London, England, in an Air Force base called Mildenhall, in a little town there called Ely. E-L-Y. So that was an experience because we flew all over Europe, Italy, Spain, Greece. So I got to see quite a bit of the world, actually. Then in the 14th of May, 72, through September 8th, 72, I went TDY again. This time I signed up for the TDY like I did for the, the TDY in, in, uh, in India. and. Uh, that landed me in Vietnam, which I was trying to avoid initially when I enlisted. But um, we were supporting Operation Constant Guard. Now, this was when the Vietnamese left the Paris peace talks, and Nixon basically said, just go in and bomb, bomb, bomb. And that's what this was. We were supporting that operation. And I was there, uh, I flew with the 61st Tactical airlift squadron as a loadmaster. So I was doing missions, flying in and out of uh, combat zones all over Vietnam, Da Nang, Way, and Lock, lots of different places. There was some, uh, again, I was flying with the 314th combat support group of the 314th tactical airlift wing. And for that operation, we flew some 45 combat missions. Wow. Uh, was awarded the Air Force Air Medal for that meritorious service during uh, aerial flight. We did airdrops, uh, low-altitude parachute extractions where the cargo shanked down the aircraft, 
flying about 10 to 12 feet off the deck uh, and, uh, and speed off roads where we actually land, back up, open the cargo doors and speed off and the load just slides right out of the aircraft. Oh my goodness. So, so you're not afraid of heights is what you're saying. Well, no, not in an airplane. <laughs> but putting me on a on a cell tower or something, that would be a different story, I'm afraid. While I was in Vietnam, I applied to uh, several different colleges because I knew when I got out, I wanted to continue with my college. And uh, so I applied to UC, Wright State, uh, University of Dayton. And I was fortunately accepted into the radiological technologist program at UC. When I got back from Vietnam, I applied for an early out because they were downsizing the troops, all the combat troops were being pulled out of Vietnam. Of course, it didn't end until 75, but uh, this was uh, in July of 73. So I was granted uh, an early out in June and was able to pick up some prerequisites at UC during the summer program. That's fantastic. So that was pretty much my career in the Air Force. So you went all around the world. Why why come back home? Why come back to Ohio when you've seen all these wonderful places, India, England, Italy, like that? What made you want to come back? My wife and I are products of uh, Coleraine Township, basically. Uh, products of the boomer generation, baby boomers. And our parents moved out here. My wife's parents moved out probably 55, somewhere around there. And my parents moved out here in uh, Skyland Acres when it was just being developed in 1960, uh, right off of Pippin Road across from Keller's Lake, if anybody remembers that. And it's a good little fishing hole in Coleraine Township at the time. So we knew what uh, Coleraine was. When I got out of service, Chris and I moved into a family home over in College Hill on North Bend Road. We lived there actually for 23 years, but when we started having kids, after a while we decided we need to get out of the city and get back to Coleraine because um, we like the school system, we like the country feeling. It was just a little more wide open, less people on top of you. You know, I could shake my neighbor's hand through the window practically in College Hill, but where we moved out here in Coleraine Township. It was, you know, we've got a couple of acres and it's just very nice. So you're also a member, you and Chris both are members of the Historical Society. So tell us a little bit about the society and what you do with them. Well, a lot of us that are members of the society know a lot about the community because we live here most of our lives. Uh, And it's very interesting to have the history of the community. It's just a lot of fun. Officially, I'm the Buildings and Grounds Chairman. And what that entails is I help get stuff done, like getting the toll booth moved to where it is down in Heritage Park and set up. I help with getting the signage for the um, uh, stuff, the tree plantings in, in Heritage Park, Dunlap Station outline with the trees. That's what the purpose of the trees are in front of the toll booth. And then also cleaning up headstones around the different uh, 19 uh, historical cemeteries in Coleraine Township. Uh, the township actually 
takes care of the grass cutting and that, but the uh, historical society, uh, once or twice a year, go out and clean the headstones off that really need to be cleaned off. We actually have a Civil War soldier buried in one of those, don't we? We have a couple of different cemeteries that have Civil War, but yes, there is a Civil War veteran buried up at um, Cedar Grove, right there at uh, Colerain 275, where the big white shirt is. But there's also a Revolutionary War veteran buried right near the church wow. building itself. So, yeah. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Yeah. So I help keep up the museum building as well. And actually pretty much anything that I'm asked to do or voluntold to do, that's basically what I do. And it's a lot of fun. So being a veteran and being here in Coleraine Township, I'm sure you've made a lot of other friends with other veterans too. Do you hear similar stories from them where they just grew up in the area and that's why they want to live here? Exactly. Like all the high school buddies, we all either got drafted or enlisted around the same time, some a little earlier than than me because I spent a year in college, uh, but others were left right out of high school. They no more than got out of high school, and they got their draft notice, and they went into the Army. But there's probably a dozen or more guys that I went to high school with that still live, came back and still live in Colling Township. So, and again, I think it has to do with the, the rural atmosphere. You know, when we came back from Vietnam, we didn't, we didn't get a very good welcome. And we just pretty much wanted to be left alone. Some guys came back with PTSD, having trouble dealing with a lot of crowds and things like that. Didn't want to live in the city and move back to Colerain. You hear birds instead of horns. Uh, you know, you can see fox, deer, turkeys, all kinds of things. We're in the city, cats, dogs barking, and, you know, people everywhere. So I think it was, uh, that was one of the main reasons why we all moved back, just to, we wanted to calm down from, you know, what we saw, what we did. That's why we came out here to get some solace, if you will. Makes a lot of sense. So going back to the history and early days of Coloring Township, our area was actually founded via a military structure called Fort Coleraine. So can we go back in time? Can you talk about that history and how this sure. area used to be military? Yeah. Well, back in the seven, late 1700s, you know, the, this area out here was starting to be developed, meaning that, you know, settlers were venturing further and further into the Ohio Valley, exploring and uh, settling on little farms and things like that. In 1790, a guy by the name of John Dunlap, who was once a surveyor for John Cleves Sims, who was a congressman from New Jersey, he had bought a bunch of land uh, between the Great Miami and the uh, Little Miami from the U.S. government in 1788. So he hired John Dunlap to survey the area to develop little settlements in the area. Well, John uh, was sort of his own guy, and uh, he left Sims as a surveyor in 1789 to set up a settlement on the east bank of the Great Miami River, about 15 miles 
from Fort Washington down in Cincinnati. So you can see there was already a development of a series of settlements, forts in Cincinnati. They called it Dunlap Station originally by most of the settlers, but John <laughs> called it Fort Coleraine after his hometown in Ireland. So we have a connection with uh, Coleraine, Ireland. Uh, and if you look at our logo of the three fern leaves, uh, that's sort of where that came from. Now, because of the danger of Indians, they built uh, their settlement around about where Heritage Park is, Southwestern Water District Station there in that area. They called it on the Great Bend of the, uh, or the Big Bend of the Great Miami River. But because of the Indian population down here, the Shawnee, they built about 10 houses in an L shape. And then uh, they had elevated block houses on the four corners and then filled in the spaces in between those block houses with uh, nine foot pickets or, you know, small trees just like your typical fort that you'd see on TV from the old days. Inside the fort, there were 11 families, which amounted to about 30 people. Plus, there was 18 militia men that were sent up from Fort Washington to sort of keep the families in that as safe as could be possibly done. But the families endured a 26-hour Indian attack. Oh, my gosh. Uh, by somewhere around 300 to 500 Indian Shawnees who were led by the infamous Chief Blue Jacket. Like the hockey team of, in Columbus now, yeah, the Blue Jackets. You know, that was in uh, January 10th, 1791. So they kept attacking the fort. Blue Jacket said, either surrender or we're just going to wipe you off the face of the map. Well, this small contingency of people, both the families and the militia, were able to defend a fort for about 26 hours. And on the morning of January 11th, knowing that the fort had sent out people back to Fort Washington to get reinforcements, Blue Jacket decided it wasn't worth his time and just basically gave up and left. And then shortly thereafter that, because the families were like, we're not putting up with all these Indians attack anymore. And uh, they decided to abandon the fort. So the, the fort was abandoned for many years. And then in 1835, uh, Hamilton County maps show that uh, a little town called Colerain was in about the same area, but it didn't last forever. So from uh, 1848 to 1884, a guy by the name of D.J. Johnson owned about 55 acres of the original uh, 128 that was in the Big Bend of the uh, Great Miami River. And then in 1914, it was sold again. Then in 1920, the Wilhelm family bought the property, and that was where the Wilhelm farm was. And most people from Coleraine Township would know the Wilhelms. And then uh, in 2000, Coleraine Township bought the property from the Wilhelms. That's quite the history. Well, the, the attack is probably the most infamous attack in Coleraine's history. I mean, you're talking 
three to five hundred Indians with basically about forty people now, for 20, twenty-six hours. I'd say twenty-six hours is a long time to hold out. I can only imagine what was going through that uh, people's mind when they saw all those Indians. And this isn't, you said there was only like 18 militia members, right? right? So right. all these people, mothers, children, right? they had to take up arms too. Right. That's exactly right. And they all defended the fort because their lives depended on it. So it was well constructed, I guess. And uh, the militiamen must have been uh, really good marksmen because there weren't very many people um, that were killed during the battle. Uh, it was phenomenal that they lasted that long. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you feel like that kind of, that fortitude and strength, can you see that in people who live in Coleraine Township today? Do you feel like that's kind of echoed? Yeah, I would say, you know, the, everybody who lives in Coleraine has, has, in my feeling, is that they respect the land and they respect their heritage. Um, and I think that they uh, are very strong-willed about what goes on in the, in the township, as evidenced by the trustee meetings at times uh, with the citizens' remarks and things. So um, I think, yeah, the, the, the fortitude that we have, uh, and I'll include myself, you know, I'll defend the township from anybody. You know, it's, uh, this is our home. This is where we live. This is where we grew up. And this is where we want to stay. But on the other hand, we were not opposed to progress. But don't intrude on our uh, livelihood and our and our homeland. You know, it's uh, we're here because we want to be here, not because we have to be here. Thoughtful progress. Yes. <laughs> yeah, thoughtful. This area was very popular with veterans returning from World War II. Do you know how many people? flocked to this area during that time and why this was so popular? I couldn't find anything on how many there were. However, it was a combination of, like I said, very similar to my situation or the guys I went in service for. We wanted to come back to a little solace. We didn't want to deal with a lot of people. And I think that's what the World War II vets, you know, they were coming out of a, a world war and that lasted for four and a half, five years. And I think the they were itching to get back and get back in the workforce because they left their uh, friends and family and the women took up the workforce uh, and doing their part, obviously, for the defense of the country and to make sure that uh, their husbands and brothers and, and sons were, were provided with the means they needed to end the war. But when they came back, they wanted to get out of the city. I mean, they had gone through the Depression beforehand, then they go into war. Guys wanted to get back and start their families and get jobs. But then the, there was a marketing issue also. There were some shrewd developers out there that saw the need for the housing. And at that time, like now, the farmers were starting to sell off their property because either their sons or daughters or whatever didn't survive World War II. There was nobody to leave it to. Uh, and they started selling off the land. 
And one of the areas was Colerain Township where there was a lot of farmers getting out of the farming business or they were too old to do the land without any the next generation to take over. So it was an opportunity for developers to grab up the land. And I think that's what they did. And then they started marketing purposely to the World War II vets and Korean vets. Um, to You could buy a cheap home, uh, provide a place, a roof, nice place for your family. And it was very near uh, where a lot of the jobs were, like P&G and Miami Valley Labs area and GE out, out in Evendale. So that's what drove the veterans to start migrating this way out of uh, downtown, out of the north side. They just kept coming uh, to get further and further away from urban areas. For example, North Northbrook. There's Northgate, Northside, Northbrook. Anyway, Northbrook. Uh, and they marketed it as shopping centers, places for kids to play, new schools, close to job transportation. They had transportation began to get all the way out here from, from the city. So it was a good marketing and it was successful. And that's why a lot of the veterans came out here. I know my my dad, you know, saw the opportunity to get us into a better school because they had heard about Coleraine Township Schools, um, the Northwest Local School District. And my uncle, his brother, younger brother, he came out to the Northbrook area and, and bought a home in Northbrook. I think that's why the success of the migration the, the economy was fairly good and people sought opportunity and a better place to live for their families. Do you do you feel like it was mainly a population boom in Northbrook in particular? Do you feel like oh, it was yeah. all over Colerain? Oh, no. I, well, it was all over Colerain, but the developers of Northbrook were on top of the marketing value and, and I think they pushed hard to get veterans out here because they knew that they, they would want that type of uh, community. And they were all, you know, veterans. There was a camaraderie amongst the veterans, whether you were in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, it didn't matter. Um, you were all veterans. So th- there was a commonality there. And I think that's really what pushed the progress. You said pretty much all branches of the military came to this area. It wasn't right. Army or Air was, Force or yeah, something I couldn't in find any evidence that there was any concentration of now, just by sheer numbers, though, I will say this. The Army uh, was the largest force. And then uh, probably the uh, Marine Corps was second. Uh, and then, the, of course, the Navy and, and then the Air Force was probably the smallest contingency. Although with GE Aircraft Division and Evendale, there was probably a lot of Air Force guys around. But... I think the Army, by far, was probably the largest contingency of, uh, in my opinion. Um, I don't have any statistics to, to base that on, but just from sheer numbers of what I knew in, when, I was in, uh, when I enlisted, according to the draft, and that a large percentage was the Army, of course. I'm sure it helped with safety, too. It made people feel safe to have all these veterans living around them, knowing right. that, you know, if something happened, they could be protected by right. all these Air Force, Army, Marine. Right. 
what have right. you. Do you feel like that sense of welcome is still strong here in Coloring Township for veterans? Oh yeah, I think the the um, the veterans community is is strong in that. Again, we're all veterans. We have a commonality with uh, with the United States. It's our country. It's and we'll defend it. I mean, there's that kind of uh, camaraderie amongst all the veterans. We'll all say hi to each other at some point, no matter where we are, and we'll stick together. We may not have the same ideas about things and government and politics and things, but when it comes to veterans, we're a common group. Do you have any groups or memberships that you belong to here locally? Yeah, I belong to the Vietnam Veterans of America Chapter 10 in uh, Redding, Ohio, is where our chapter house is. And then I also belong to the um, AMVETS American Veterans Group uh, post-1988 in Mumford Heights in North Bend and Chidiot. And I once belonged to the VFW um, Gailey Post in, on Brownsway Lane, which is technically still in Coleraine Township, even though it's right at the edge of uh, North College Hill. Uh, and that's been there for a long, long time. That was one of the first VFW posts in Coleraine Township. Do you feel like the the township and the community has done a good job at saying thank you and giving back to veterans? I mean, we have the banners that we put up. We've got the Memorial Day event. As a veteran, how how do you feel about all of that? Or do you feel like there's more that can be done? I think all in all, America's woken up to the fact that freedom has to be defended. And those that cannot needs to support those that can. Servicemen and women, World War II, proved what we can do when we all work together uh, in the service and at home. Nobody likes wars, but don't begrudge those that choose to feel compelled to defend freedom. I think the township does a decent job of showing appreciation, but I'd like to see a cooperative effort by creating programs similar to the event, uh, people working cooperatively uh, in the fire and police do each year Mm -hmm. to fix up, clean up needy families, homes, but focus on the veterans. There are veterans out there who came back, weren't able to get decent paying job. They were working for what they could find. And a lot of the, those folks have, are barely making, making it through the, through life. And merchants offering discounts to vets. Yes, Lowe's has a discount program for veterans. Uh, That's a national chain, of course. But there are other merchants that just pay attention uh, a little bit more to veterans. I know everybody says, thank you for your service. and That's fine. That's the first step. But helping the veterans get through life, taking consideration that the some of the Vietnam vets especially, you know, they're suffering from PTSD. Nobody would even know that they were until some crisis happens. For example, uh, the police department, uh, their programs now are, they're becoming more in tune with mental health issues. 
mm-hmm. uh, not just veterans, but all mental health issues with uh, suspects or criminal people around the community. And people who see traumatic events, right. too. They can That's be witnesses. Exactly. To... exactly. And they're being trained more and more on how to deal with those types of people, especially veterans. So that I think that's a positive step forward for, for any uh, communities. You kind of touched on this before, but you said when you came home from Vietnam, it was not the warm welcome that your father may have received when he came back from the Air Force. Right, that's true. Um, you know, Vietnam was not a popular war. A lot of people didn't understand why we were even there. And quite frankly, some of us didn't understand why we were there. We only knew that we were defending our country to keep communism out of out of the United States. So we did what we were told. That's that's the way it was. I've heard accounts of soldiers being spit on, had bottles thrown at them and Yeah. When when I came home they we were told don't wear your uniform home when I was discharged and coming home. And so we I didn't. But I had seen on the news, obviously, and and read the paper uh, and talked to some of my buddies that say, oh, yeah, I was in, uh, I got off the plane in, in uh, California and uh, I was spat on. Uh, I had stuff thrown at me. I was called a baby killer, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the greatest of homecomings like World War II hit parades, obviously. And again, that was a world war. So we had the entire support. When I say we, I mean the veterans had the entire support of the of the United States. Uh, in Vietnam, that was a very localized war, very much like Desert Storm, Afghanistan, Iraq. That was not a popular war either. However, I think society learned their lesson from what happened with the Vietnam vets and knew that if they supported their veterans that maybe they would come home in a better frame of mind and that kind of thing. So the the Vietnam vets were kind of angry about all that. And that's in some cases, some veterans are very much angry about that. But that's in the past and we need to move on. We need to gain a little self-respect which I think we've all done. And we're starting to see a better attitude with society, knowing they've, they've tr- they're trying to correct their uh, misjudgment of the veterans from the Vietnam War. And Korea, that's another war. It was called the Forgotten War. It came home to nothing. There was, oh, you were in the war. Oh, okay. That was about it. No thank you, no flag waving, None of that. It was just like, again, that was an unpopular war. It was right after World War II, and it was, they were just sort of lost. And I think that's why the Korean vets are so quiet. Because, again, from the things they saw, because that was sort of the beginning of the uh, guerrilla warfare uh, that we intensified during Vietnam. And they saw things over there that, you know, you can't imagine, just like some of the uh, veterans in the Japan campaign, a lot of horrendous things going on. 
From a civilian standpoint, what can people who haven't served do to thank veterans? Again, I think it, it just acknowledge that we, that we exist and help those that are in, in need a little more. I think, um, you know, a lot of companies now are touting that veteran-owned, which is more or less to say, I'm a veteran. I need to prosper. I'm not a big company but I can do the best job as anyone big company can. And so I think you see a sort of a, a call out for a little assistance, uh, not directly, but indirectly. But shopping at veteran-owned stores. Right. or shopping at veteran-owned stores, uh, giving discounts, like I said before, and supporting the veterans' projects around the township and in the Cincinnati Tri-State area. Something kind of off topic I'm going to throw your way. Okay. Um, as a, a Coleraine High School graduate, how do you feel about the schools turning 100? Well, that's interesting. It's the, the history of the school being in the historical society. We have people come in and ask about different things. And one of the bigger topics is the school system. And it just amazes me that you can drive around the township and see these little school what were once schoolhouses around the township that still exist. Uh, some of them, well, most of them are now residents. One I can think of is um, on uh, Blue Rock Road near Flick. Uh, one is um, right here at Old Coleraine and uh, 27. Just as you get on Old Coleraine, there's a house right there that was once a school building. And then to see... Coleraine Elementary, that was actually the centralized school district once upon a time in the 30s. And and when I came to Coleraine Township with my parents back in the 60s, I mentioned that, you know, they were touting the, through the marketing in Northbrook, they were touting new schools and things like that. Well, Taylor Elementary was being built right on um, Springdale Road. And that was the first school that I went to. And they were trying to build these things so fast that I remember that in my classroom, we didn't even have tile on the floor yet because they were behind on getting the flooring down, but they needed to open. And then when they built White Oak Junior High, I went to White Oak in my uh, junior high years, seventh and eighth grade. And that too was a brand new school. And again, I was in the band and our band room and part of the hallway back there was concrete. There was no tile on the floor. So it was kind of, it was kind of weird. But then when, by the time I got to high school, the high school had been established for a year. And so uh, when I went to high school, Coleraine High School, it was all brand spanking new and things like that. So still shiny and still shiny. (laughs) It was, uh, it was an experience I would trade. If people want to find out more about the Historical Society, how can they get more information or connect with you guys? Um, they can just jump on their computer and go to Coleraine, with an E, coleraine-historical-oh.org. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Hey Colerain. New episodes will be available each month, so make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. And hey, we're social. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can also learn more about what's going on in our community by visiting our website, colerain.org. On behalf of us here in the Colerain Township Administration, I'm Helen, and thanks for listening to Hey Colerain.